0: Good evening again. If you have a Bible, let's open it up to Acts chapter 17. Uh, We are making a little stop in the book of Acts before we start to look uh, and observe all that Jesus brings through his advent, through his first coming. We'll be observing that and studying that the next several weeks, but tonight uh, between the James series and between our advent celebrations, we're going to be thinking about the idea of cross-cultural communication. Uh, will be in Acts chapter 17, and that can be found in the Black Bibles that you have nearby on page 926. So if you don't have a Bible, but want to kind of follow along with where we are, it's page 926 in the Black Bibles there. Kind of my thesis is that God sent Jesus into the world, and in the same way, God is sending us. Jesus even says this a couple of times pretty explicitly in the Gospel of John. He says, the Father is sending me, and so now I'm sending you. Um, So we are a sent people, uh, and what that means is we're always going to be communicating across cultures. So as soon as you begin to have faith in Jesus, you you become a person that is now a part of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. The future world is now present in your heart and in your faith and in your life spiritually. Um, And so then there's now a disconnect between what you know to be true and the world you actually live in, because we still live in this world. That is the old creation, right? Every tear has not been wiped away yet. The world is not completely finished yet. There's not kind of the, uh, the perfect everything being made right that we're still longing for. That, that hasn't happened yet. So from the minute we have faith, there is a cultural disconnect between us and the world we live in. And for some of us, it it becomes really frustrating and discouraging. You just feel this great distance and this chasm. You get frustrated with what you see in the culture around you. Uh, For others of us, it's less obvious. We're just not as aware of it. But my argument would be that it's always there. It's always there. And we can either be purposeful about it, or it can just be an accident kind of thing in our life that we don't think about, right? So what I'd like is for us to be a purposeful people that we're prayerful about. We recognize, man, God's got a purpose Throughout the New Testament, God uses terms for his people like um, we are sent ones, we're called out ones, we're ambassadors, we're a kingdom of priests, and so he uses all this language to talk about the idea that that we have a purpose in this world, and that is to communicate, to call this hurting and broken world to God. Um, So cross-cultural communication is always going to be taking place. Great example of it is here in Acts chapter 17. So let's look at the example of the apostle Paul as he communicates across cultures the good news of Jesus. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Let me stop there. We'll look at more of these verses uh, as we move on, but let me pray for us and ask God to teach us tonight. God, we pray and ask that you would meet us here by your spirit, that you would help us. Um, as I said earlier, Lord, there's always, there's always a gap, and we pray that you'd help us to close that gap to communicate the goodness of who you are uh, to a culture that doesn't recognize that. We pray that you would help us to be those messengers that you make us to be, to represent your hope in this world. Uh, and Lord, we just pray that you would open our, our hearts and our eyes to what you want of us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many years ago, um, the church that I grew up in, uh, or at least started going to when I was 11 or 12, my teen years grew up in, um, the church that I was on staff then with in Temple uh, really began talking and dreaming about planting a church over here in Killeen. I mean, it came up several times in the 80s and in the 90s as they would build a new building or as they would have people coming from this side of the county, they would think maybe we should plant a church in Colleen, And then the elders and the leaders would be like, no, that's stupid, we don't wanna do that, right? They just kinda kept bringing it up and swatting it down. It just didn't didn't seem wise, it didn't seem like a good use of resources, it didn't seem like the right time, it didn't seem like that was what God was leading them to do. So the conversation came up and it got shot down multiple times over the years. I got to be in in a lot of those conversations and then it really started to heat up in the early 2000s and I was back on staff there uh, as the children and family pastor at the time and it just started being talked about a lot more. Um, 2002, 2003, 2004, got to the point now where there was a shift and there really started to be a consensus among the leaders like, no, this is what God is doing. God wants us to, to pick up and move some people across the county into this foreign culture over here and start a new work. It just started to seem more and more clear God is calling us to do this. And so a core of people started to, to rally around this idea. And I, I joke a little bit that it's a foreign culture. It's the same county, but it is a different culture. And have you ever been to Temple? It's a scary place, but it is. It's very different, right? Um, and, and so there's, there's cultural differences. And so the idea was that they would plant a new church that would communicate the same hope of the gospel that they're communicating over there, but, but do it with the same core values of teaching the Bible and being transparent and... and Pointing people to Jesus, but but doing it in a way that's uniquely fitted for this culture, for this city. Um, I started to get in on those conversations, started to be interested in being involved in it myself, and it really got to the point where it was about 10 years ago at this time, I gave a resume to the elders. They'd already seen it because I worked for them already, but you know, I was kind of being formal about it. I put in an application and basically said, I I want to pastor this new church. I want to be a part of this. I feel like God's calling me to be a part of this as well now. And so I was starting to feel swept up into this. And if if you know anything about the culture of Temple, uh, I was taught since my earliest childhood to hate Colleen. Like this this was an enemy of people of Temple. So when y'all hear me make cracks about how bad Temple is, part of that is kind of trying to get them back for all the brainwashing they did when I was a child before I moved over here. Um, I was taught to never come here, right? That was kind of the way we were set up. And so this was a big deal for me to say, no, I think God wants me to go there and be a part of this new church. And there was this one little last piece for me. Um, I'd been remodeling a historic home. as an 80-year-old house in the old part of town over there, and just poured so much blood and sweat and tears into this house that I just, I was having a hard time thinking about letting go of the house. You know, I just wanted to finally enjoy the house now that it was almost finished, and I was having a hard time letting go of that. So that was the last piece for me. I was heading towards an interview with the elders to talk to them about this job, and said, I was about 90% there wanting to come over here, but not sure if I wanted to move. Um, But I felt like if I was going to really get to know people over here and be a part of things, I I needed to move. Um, So I was wrestling with that, praying about that. And literally two days before my interview with the elders at Temple Bible Church, my house caught on fire. Um, So that was like a clarifying moment for me, right? Now, don't feel too bad. It didn't burn down. It was just like a closet and a bathroom and a lot of smoke damage, okay? Um, but it was still pretty horrifying, it was still pretty traumatic, and it still was just that tipping point that I needed to be like, all right, I'm all in, forget it, I'm leaving. <laughs> that house, it's, it's been trying to kill me for four years, and now it's finally gotten a little too close, I'm going to leave this house behind. Um, we moved over this direction. I went into that interview, my senior pastor told me that I was like, more confident than he'd ever seen me in that interview, like I really knew this is what God wanted me to do. In the Bible, we see people get this sense of God wants me to take what I have and share it with somebody else, to move into this other context. We see that real clearly with the apostle Paul. He was uh, praying with other leaders at the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, and it became really clear. They were praying, they were worshiping, they were fasting, and the spirit told the leaders set apart Barnabas and Paul to send them out to this ministry I've called them to. So we see this kind of movement throughout the scriptures. And as I said, even if you're not a missionary or church planter, you are called to communicate cross-culturally, right? Because you just, if you know Jesus, you just really don't belong to this culture anymore. So there's always some level of cross-cultural communication that God is calling you to. And and we want to zero in here on what Paul was doing, how he was doing, because he's a great model for us. And I just want to celebrate that this text is actually one of the texts that we prayed through as a core group 10 years ago. So we would have these core group meetings to plant this church, and we would pray about what kind of church we wanted this to be, and by God's grace, God has answered some of these prayers. We, we looked at this text and said, God, we want to be this kind of church that communicates the gospel in this kind of way, and prayed about that. We had a core group of like 30 people, 40 people coming to these monthly meetings. We prayed. We said, God, help us communicate the gospel to different people in, in different ways. And this is what we prayed. And it's now my prayer, looking back on what God started 10 years ago, that we would continue to be this kind of people, that God would keep working this out in our church. Because you know, if you've been around Clean Long, that God's replanting our church every two years, right? And we were, there's a lot of turnover here. And so we have to keep praying, and keep being vigilant, that God would continue making us into what he wants us to be here. So this was our prayer. The first thing that we prayed about was what we saw at the beginning of this section, and that is that our heart would break for our city for our family, for our friends and our neighbors that don't know Jesus. So that's the first thing I see in the story, that Paul's heart broke for other people. And so that would be my prayer for you, and that would be my uh, exhortation to you, that our heart needs to break for people that don't know Jesus. Look again at verse 16. He says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So his spirit was provoked Um, his insides were moved, Uh, he was stirred up, would be another way of saying that, or his heart was broken, he was torn inside. Why? Because he saw that the city was full of idols. What are idols? Well, we usually think of idols as just little statues that people bow down to, Um, and that's true. Uh, That is a way you can have an idol, but in our society, we're just so cool and so sophisticated that we don't really bow down to statues anymore, right? We still have idols, though. We have idols. We just make them abstract. We call them concepts. Uh, so now we worship sex or we worship power or we worship influence or we worship um, security or we worship relationships. There are these false saviors that we think will save us and we bow down to them. Maybe not physically. Maybe you don't, you know, every night bow down to education, but you're giving your soul to your education. And maybe every night you don't bow down to the next relationship, the next boyfriend or girlfriend, but you're giving your soul and your hope is in that boyfriend or that girlfriend. Maybe you're not bowing down to your career physically, getting down on your knees and praying, oh, career, save me. But really, if I look at your life and I talk to you about the deepest motivations of your heart, you are looking to your career to save you. And so we need to see that in our friends and neighbors, and we need to recognize, just like Paul, that... People are worshiping false saviors all around us. We're worshiping things that can't save us. We're bowing to these things that are not going to bring us life and health. And so Paul's heart is broken over that, and that pushes him, right? There's this kind of stirring. He says the spirit is provoked. He's, he's moved inwardly to then talk to people about it. You're like, hey, how, how's that working out for you, right? It says he starts reasoning with people in the synagogues. That's where the Jews would gather and read the Bible, Says he also reasoned with people in the marketplace. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he went where the people were and he started talking to them about it because he was all worked up. He couldn't help himself. Uh, so my prayer is that we would be worked up like that, that we would be uh, motivated. We would see the idols and that would push us to do something about it. Um, the last several months, there have been these videos that came out about Planned Parenthood, and I think those have served in that kind of sense. Uh, this is a parallel to what I'm saying. I don't think an exact representation of an idol issue, but uh, something that broke people's heart and stirred people up. People saw these Planned Parenthood videos, and they are like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was that bad. Um, I never really thought about it. And it stirred people up, made people uh, more aware of, of the bad and broken things happening through Planned Parenthood. Well, my prayer for us, again, not necessarily, again, this is kind of an aside or parallel. My, my prayer for us is that we would just look out in general across the culture and see the things that our friends are worshiping and bowing down to, and we would be stirred up about it. We would realize, wow, this is, this is bad. My friends are trying to be saved through these other things, and it's not saving them. It's making their life worse, and that would stir us up to, to communicate, to talk, to reason with people. Um, this whole process, a lot of times theologians like to call it cultural exegesis. Y'all ever heard that term before, cultural exegesis? Some of you have heard that. Okay. Um, so the word exegesis is just a Greek word for Bible study. So we use that sometimes uh, if we want to be real nerdy when we talk about Bible study. It's just a Greek word for, for pulling stuff out of the text, right? So studying and what, it, what does the text say and digging into it and listening to it well, respecting it, and pulling the truth out of the Bible text. So that's a common word we use for Bible study. And then when we take that word and we join it with our Culture, what we're saying is we want to do kind of the same process with our culture. We want to listen to our culture, pay attention to what it's saying, pull out its truths and say, this is the truths of my culture, right? So we want to know the, the movies that our friends are watching and the music that they're listening to and the poetry that they're celebrating and say, this is uh, the desires of their hearts. This is what my friends value. This is what my friends are into. This is what they think is important. So what kind of people are around you? What kind of language do they speak? What kind of music do they listen to? What are the saviors that people are giving their hearts to? And there's a process. We have to learn. We have to study. If you were going to be a missionary and go to who knows where, across the oceans, you would do some basic study. You would say, what language do they speak? What do they value? What do they worship? What do they believe in? What are the things that I could come alongside and affirm in their culture? And what are the things that I would disagree with in their culture? Um, Can I I really understand what they're about? And again, coming back to, is your heart broken over it? Do you see people following a false savior and your heart's broken because you want them to know the truth? And I would say that's the first step for us to have a broken heart. This is what I think it looks like on an individual basis, and I see this happening a lot in you, and I just kind of want to like fan it into flame and say, keep going, right? So on an individual basis, this looks like just having genuine friendships where you listen to people you understand, what they struggle with, and you understand the false hopes that they're pursuing. And you're stirred up to talk to them about it. You're like, I'm worried about you, or this is where that might go, or have you ever considered Jesus, or this is how Jesus has helped me, and you just have those individual conversations with people. I love seeing that happen, and a lot of that happens in our church. I think that's the most common way that we live this out as individual Christians. Another, maybe more advanced, I don't know if that's the right word, but Another more complex way that this happens is we get um, heartbroken over people in a more distant culture. So it's not just our friends and our circle of influence, but you kind of, like you begin to learn about a particular problem in this country or in that country or in this subculture on the other side of the city or whatever it may be. And so you want to be a part of people that are trying to reach those people, right? So starting off, most obvious is just communicating to people in a culture very similar to yours. Now we're moving into more cross-cultural where... There's a little farther that you're going, right? It's uh, maybe coming alongside a team of missionaries. You have friends that have uh, moved to Asia or Africa or some other country, and you want to be a part of their team. A lot of you are on missionary support letter uh, email lists. You pray for them. You talk to them. You have them over when they're in town. Um, That's another way that this can be exercised. Your heart is broken for some other group. Maybe they're farther away. Maybe you have less understanding, but your heart is still broken for those false saviors that they're worshiping. Um, just so you know how this works at our church, corporately, we set aside 10% of our general income to, to collaborate and support people that uh, have a broken heart over these other cultures and they want to go reach some of culture. We call it global outreach, or we call it missions, or we call it church planting, right? It's people saying, we want to go start an ongoing, active, uh, living, multi-generational work that will bring the hope of Jesus to some other city, some other tribe, to some other people, to some other neighborhood. Uh, so 10% of our funds are set aside for that. Another 1% we set aside for collaboration with Acts 29, which is a church planting collective where we uh, join with each other to help each other start these new works. It's primarily been in North America, now it's uh, much more global. I and mean, a lot of those funds go to support under, under areas like uh, urban church planting in the United States and then third world church planting overseas. And so part of what I get to do then is come alongside people by helping them figure out if they really are called. I get to be a part of what we call assessing and coaching. So someone wants to start a new work, start a new church, they'll be assessed by us, and we'll read applications, we'll listen to their sermons, we'll interview them, we'll see how healthy their marriage is, we'll talk to them about um, their emotional well-being, we'll do long interviews, and then we'll kind of give them like a green light, a yellow light, or a red light, right? Like green light is, man, go, start a new church, If you go now, you could start 10 new churches, right? And we just slap them on the butt and send them out the door, right? We don't literally slap them on the butt, so sorry. Um, The yellow would be slow down, maybe you need some more training, maybe you need an internship. Um, Last couple of guys that we helped to plant a church would would, would have been a yellow. These are guys that would intern with us. They'd come and learn from me, spend a lot of time with me, and then go plant. We send a guy to plant in Houston. Uh, Daniel Davis planted a church in Houston and interned with us in 2009. Uh, And then Kyle Black is now planting in Copper's Cove, watershed church after interning with us for a couple of years here, a couple of years ago. Um, And then the red light would be like, no, don't do it. You know, (laughs) sometimes we have to say that as well. Don't plant a church, people will die. It's a bad idea. Um, So that's part of what we do with Acts 29. But, But that's in general, the second category of either international missionary or just other side of the county missionary starting a new work, starting a new church. And these are people whose heart is broken and want to communicate the gospel to someone in a, in a corporate, official, like, let's build a platform. Let's start a new church. Let's start a work among this people group or in this neighborhood where there's not already a healthy work. The third level would be um, God's calling you to be that person, right? God may be breaking your heart to not just collaborate with those people, to be on their missionary support team, Right? I mean, we want you, if you live out in Cove, to consider going out there and being a part of the church in Cove and helping them get started, if you can, if you've got the resources and the time to help them. But God may actually be calling you to start a new work, to be a part of one of these teams overseas. And I know part of how that works is we're talking about the Bible and the Holy Spirit meets us here as, as we're preaching God's word. And that may be his call for you. So I just want you to pray about that and consider that as well. God may be calling you to be like Paul, who was sent out by the Antioch Church and he went from town to town, starting new churches. Pray about that, consider that. What does God have for you next? No matter how deep or how complex it is, all of us should have a heart that's broken as we look out and see other people worshiping false saviors. That's the main point. And the application of that might might look like different things. It might look like different levels of complexity. The next thing that we see is then Paul's building a bridge. He's going to communicate by building a bridge. He's gonna connect the dots, so to speak, right? If you wanna drive your car, Across a river, it's going to be hard to go through the water. You're going to need a bridge to get over, right? I have a picture of a bridge here. Um, A large bridge can be a very complex operation. I don't want to overwhelm you because I think what Paul does here is pretty simple, and most of you can do this, um, just communicating the gospel-wise. I don't think most of you could do that, so I don't recommend you actually building a real bridge. But build a philosophical bridge or a bridge of understanding so you can have a conversation with someone about the gospel, and that's what we see Paul doing in verses uh, 22 and following. Let's see. It says 18 up there. We'll start with 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. Some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him, it says in 19, and brought him to the Areopagus, which is sometimes called Mars Hill. This is where they shared ideas in Athens. They said, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they loved ideas, kind of like a university town, maybe. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. So the first thing I wanna show you here is that he starts out by honoring them, by showing dignity to them, by valuing what they value in their culture. So I'm going back to what we talked about before Um, Do you know the culture? Have you listened to the culture? One of the ways that a friend of mine said this was, can you retell what your non-believing friends believe so well that they would smile and say, yeah, that's me, right? Have you listened to them at that level? Where you've respected what they believe, you've listened to what they believe, you know their favorite songs, you know their favorite movies, you know their values, and you say, yeah, these are your values, Can you communicate at that level? I believe Paul is communicating at that level. He's saying, I see you're very religious. And then he goes on, he says, for as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I will proclaim to you. So he's saying, in your system, you've got room for what I'm about to say to you. You've acknowledged that there's a God you don't know. And I'm gonna talk to you now about this God that you don't know. So he's using what they already affirm as an entry point to talk about the gospel with them. He goes on and he says, "'The God who made the world and everything in it, "'being Lord of heaven and earth, "'does not live in temples made by man, "'nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, "'since he himself gives to all mankind "'life and breath and everything. "'And he made from one man every nation of mankind "'to live on all the face of the earth, "'having determined allotted periods.'" and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Uh, So this section, I would describe this as Paul retelling a biblical worldview of a creator God who longs for a relationship with his people, and in this worldview, Paul is retelling it to them in their own language. He's giving them the content of the Bible without pulling out the scroll of Isaiah, which he would do in a synagogue, right? Right? So when Paul would go preach in a Jewish synagogue, he'd bust out the Old Testament scriptures and he'd say, these are your scriptures. Let me tell you how they lead us to Jesus. Here, he's not doing that because they don't read the Old Testament, right? Here, he's talking in their language. Again, he's listened to them. He's understood what they value and he's communicating the truth, but he's communicating in words that they can understand. He's translating here. And now he quotes their poets. It says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being." As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's quoting a couple of different poets there. And he's using what they already value. He's using their literature. He's using their movies, if you were. He's using their top 40 songs. He's, he's saying back to them what they've already said they believe. And he's using that as an entry point to communicate the hope that he has in the God of the Bible um, it's a challenge for us because we know that Paul sometimes would, pull, uh, would not pull his punches, right? If you've read Romans 1 and 2, how many of y'all read much of the book of Romans? It's a pretty thick book. And in Romans 1 and 2, he's, he's really pretty blunt, right? Kind of like shoves our sin in our face. But Romans is written to believers. So Romans is written to people that are already committed to Christ, and he challenges us you know what? Non-religious people are sinful. That's what he starts off with in chapter one. And religious people are sinful. So he's being real blunt and he's kind of pushing us, but that letter is written to believers. So we know Paul can be blunt and we know sometimes Paul is blunt, but here when he's talking to non-believers that don't share in his assumptions, he's being much more gentle. And the way I would describe this is because Paul knows that we're all created in the image of God. And he's giving honor and dignity to that. So the biblical worldview is that we're all created in the image of God. Even if it's fractured and broken because of our sin, there's something about us that we can always affirm. There's always going to be something that we can honor in our fellow man, our fellow woman. We can say, hey, this thing you believe, maybe it's by accident, right? But this is something you believe that is true and right and good. So I'm going to meet you there, and then we're going to have the rest of the conversation. So he's he's building a bridge. He's making a connection point. So my first question for you is, number one, do you have any non-Christian friends? Do you have any non-Christian friends? Number two, could you summarize what they love and believe so well that they would smile and say, yeah, that's me? Could you tell it back to them, their own values, their own poets, their favorite movies? Number three, um, If yes, to number one and two, good job, keep going, okay? Keep going. I think most of us struggle though, most of us struggle. So if not, I think we need to learn to make friends. Um, There's a sense in which it makes sense as Christians grow in their faith, we naturally distance ourselves from non-Christians because we wanna be around other believers and that's a biblical value. We call it fellowship that you would lock arm, lock arms with brothers and sisters that believe the same things as you and be encouraged, right? And we stir each other up and we we continue on and we say, be faithful. And that's part of what we do when we gather in church and we gather in small groups, but we don't want it to be an absolute where we cut off relationships with non-believers. Statistics have shown that new believers share their faith more with people than old believers. Did you know that? Have y'all ever heard that before? Same statistic holds true for institutions, new churches. That's why church planting is such a good idea, Even even in a country that has lots of churches. New churches share Christ more often and more effectively than old churches. So statistics to show that there's this natural process where we just kind of distance ourselves more and more from unbelievers. So I would just pray that we'd be a people that continue to build relationships with non-believers, that we could be like Jesus, who they said, the religious people looked down their nose at him and said he was a friend of sinners. They didn't mean that as a compliment, but I think we would want that to be said of us, that we would know people that don't believe the same things we believe and have real conversations really listen. One of the false saviors that I think gets in the way of us having these kind of relationships personally is where we mix up Christianity with our cultural values of busyness and effectiveness. And I've been very convicted of this as a Christian leader that I am sometimes obsessed with busyness and that makes me feel important. Like I've gotten things done and I've done big things and fast things when a lot of times God calls us to slow conversations like listening to people and valuing people and slowing down. And so we wanna not, we wanna not worship the false saviors of busyness and efficiency and effectiveness, or we'll slow down and treat people with the dignity that they deserve because they're made in the image of God. As we do that, I think we're gonna be able to build that bridge and communicate the, the gospel and the faith more effectively. The last thing that we see is we need to trust the truth. So what happens when you get really good at building bridges? there's a danger that you would just kind of sit back and admire your work, right? And you would never drive anything over that bridge. Remember, the bridge is built so you can drive across it. Um, So we connect, we affirm, I believe this too, I love this too, I value this, you're made in the image of God and God has uh, wired you this way and this is good and this is great and we come along and we affirm, but you know what, sometimes Christians uh, get obsessed with the affirmation part and we never want to disagree we start to think that our whole job in life is bridge building and there's no, there's no executing of, of bringing the truth and the difficult truths across that bridge. I've seen this, sadly, in a couple of teachers recently, Matthew Vines and Rob Bell, are a couple who are so good at bridge building, they forget to drive anything across the bridge. They start to change the message. So it's not really historic Christian truth anymore. It just becomes a new message that people will like and agree with. And so if you center everything around being agreeable, you're going to then start to just just throw out anything that doesn't seem agreeable. You're gonna start to make your sense of what's agreeable and what's attractive, then be your governing authority instead of making the Bible your governing authority. So I have a picture here of a Bible. I'll hold mine up too, here you go. Um, To remember that there's an objective truth. Our sense of what is appealing and attractive, what might help us to be better at building a bridge, that's not, that's not the last word. God's word is the last word. God is the authority. He's given us his word. He's written it down for us. We've got his word. We've got his, his judgments. We've got the facts. So trust the truth. Don't slide so far that you just make the whole point getting along with people. Look at verse 18 again. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so Paul has listened to their poets. He can quote them back to him. He understands how they think. He studied their city. He's toured it. He can talk to them in their language. And yet he still brings this annoying, weird stuff into the conversation about Jesus and the resurrection. Do You see how that works? Do You see how it's a both and? It's not just one or the other. He understands them. He listens well to them. And he brings this embarrassing idea of Jesus and the resurrection into the conversation. Um, look at verse 32, skip one down, actually 31. In 31, it says, because he has fixed a day, this is Paul preaching still, because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul just committed an unpardonable sin in our culture. He spoke the J word. Do you see that? The J word, judgment, right? Jesus has, has proven has been vindicated as God, as the judge of the world by his resurrection. We prefer where Jesus says in John 3, I've come to save the world, not to judge the world, right? That is what he came to do the first time, but Jesus is coming back to judge the world. So we have to recognize, again, that there are these things that our culture hates, our culture despises, but it's a, it's a part of the story. It's in the book, and we need not be afraid of it. Right? So Paul speaks of the judgment, The bad word, judgment, right? You know, that's a bad word. It's like, I'm surprised I don't get rushed while I'm preaching and using this word because it's such a bad word in our culture, right? But judgment is a part of what God is going to do. He's going to judge the quick and the dead, as the old creed said, the living and the dead. So then go on verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here's a summary. Some mocked, some believed. Same way today, right? Don't think if you build the bridge perfectly enough, everyone will believe everything you say. Just build your bridge, do the work, listen to people, share the truth, some will believe and some will not. It's not up to us. We, we present the truth. We love people well. We're creative. We're, we're, we listen well. We understand what they think. We share the truth, and then we leave the results up to God. So we have to trust the truth. We just have to know there's going to be some things we're going to say that people are going to, they're going to mock. They're going to call us babblers. They're going to think we're stupid. There's going to be just parts of what we believe that people don't like. Now, how do we apply this in our own life? I, I think one of the things I see people struggling with Um, as a pastor, as I counsel and talk with you about how you're doing in your own life, is one of the problems we have is we don't really deal with the beliefs that, that we don't like about our own faith. So never mind dealing with those beliefs when you're talking to someone who doesn't believe. We have to back it up a step and recognize there are things in our faith that we already don't like, right? There are things in our faith that we're already unsure about, and I would encourage you to dig deeper into those things. Like, what are those issues. It may be the J word, the word I said earlier, right? That bad word. That may be a big problem, right? You read the Old Testament, you're like, God killed people. I can't, I can't deal with that, you know? And, and it just freaks you out. I'd say study it. Don't just stop reading the Old Testament. Get some apologetics books. Talk to me about it. Find a friend. You know, read some blogs. Do some research. Maybe not blogs. Those are terrible. But, you know, do some more studying and some more digging. Dig deeper. Don't don't run away from the, the issues that make it hard for you to hold on to your faith, but dig deeper into them. Be willing to face them. God's not afraid of it. God can handle it. Tell him, God, I don't understand this. I don't get this. There, there are things I see here that I don't understand. There's parts of the scriptures that don't make sense to me or parts that upset me when I read them. So don't do the cowardly thing of just saying, so I'm just never going to read that again. But, but go ahead and dig in. Go ahead and dig in and study those things so that you can have more of a confidence when you share it with others. I mean, you're going to find... Some parts of Scripture that offend you, you were just wrong about, right? Other parts of Scripture offend you because you need to change. So, I mean, do the homework and dig into figuring out which is it. Do I need to change, or do I just misunderstand what Scripture is saying in the first place? Maybe it's some third category I haven't thought of yet. Um, But do your homework. Dig in. Trust the truth. Paul's not afraid, as I said, to, to drive the truth over this bridge. Once he's built that bridge of connection, once he's listened well, once he's related well, he'll still bring this crazy truth that there is this Jesus who rose from the dead, proving that he is king of the universe. This Jesus who died for our sins and was buried, absorbed the wrath of God, paid the penalty of our sin, but it didn't end there. That's not the end of the story. He rose from the dead, giving us hope, giving us life, giving us his resurrection power so that sin no longer can hold on to us anymore. We can be forgiven. We can be adopted into the family of God. We can be beloved as his children. So just wrapping up again, thinking about cross-cultural communication. My thesis was God sent Jesus into the world in the same way he sent us here. It's not an accident that you're here. You are here for a purpose. People that have near-death experiences usually believe that pretty strongly. Um, A lot of times the rest of us wonder. So I'm telling you, God's got you here on purpose. God has you here for a reason. And the deeper you go with God, the more you're going to feel a disconnect with your culture. The more you're going to feel fitted for heaven and not fitted for this world. So your job while you're here is to communicate across that gap. Cross-cultural communication. Share the hope you have in Jesus to a hurting culture. What are some next steps you could take? Um, I would just offer to you if you're not sure, if you don't always already feel a call across the street or across the cubicle or uh, to someone near you. You might have that clearly right now. God's saying, go talk to this person. Um, if you don't have that, I would say there are next steps where we need help in this church, just corporately. We need help in our nursery ministry, in our children's Sunday school ministry, and uh, our recovery ministry. These are three areas where we just need lots of help. And if you're looking for a place to communicate with others, the hope they have in Jesus, those are great places to start. So I would encourage you to consider those as next steps and in getting involved. Another thing I'd encourage you to communicate is just taking the scary next step of talking even to another Christian about your faith. So some of you are growing Christians. You've been coming to church now. You're hearing this truth from the scripture. You're just kind of starting to get it. It's starting to click with you. I um, mean, it might be really good next step for you to just get with another believer and say, let's have coffee on Tuesday mornings or on Thursday nights or whatever it might be. And let's pray. Let's look at the scripture together. Let's encourage each other. Because I, I love this, I hope in this, but I don't understand all of it and I need someone else to kind of walk with me through this. So just finding another believer even to talk about these things. And the more you talk about it with another believer, the more natural it will be to talk about it with anyone else. Um, the other one is just supporting other global outreach partners. I talked about this earlier. Uh, we've got the Wascuras coming in, in a couple of weeks. Maybe you could get on their team and just pray for them, be a part of what they're doing. Uh, we have the Tucker family coming in. They've been in Malaysia for a while. They're going to be here. You could talk to them. You're going to probably get a chance to meet them in another month. Um, the Brandons, another missionary couple, someone that you could meet, maybe get on their team, help them, pray for them, support them. Um, or as I said before, our church out in Copper's Cove, Watershed Church, Kyle and Lindsey Black, they could use your support, right? Um, it's, it's harder to get involved with a church when it's 50 people than it is to get involved with a church when it's 500 people. But maybe God's calling you all to get involved over there. Maybe if you live... Pretty much anybody west of here, I think, should consider it at least, should should pray about it. Um, so they're out in Kempner, and that's Watershed Church. But but pray. For for all of you, there's got to be a next step. What is God calling you to next? Maybe God's not calling you across an ocean. Maybe he's just calling you to talk to that brother or sister, or that family member, or that coworker. But ask the Lord to tell you, what is the next step for me? Let me pray for us. Uh, and then I've got some news about Just next steps for us as a church, some things we're doing with our building. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second. Let me pray for us first. Uh, God, we thank you that you sent uh, Paul to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Lord, most of us are Gentiles, and we just thank you for that heritage. Um, He shared the gospel with some other people, and they shared the gospel with some other people, and they shared the gospel with us, and we thank you that we get to see uh, the glory and the, the riches that we have in Jesus. Pray, Lord, that we could be a part of that as well, keeping that going. We believe you've left us here for a purpose. God, we're, we're made for heaven, uh, but we're still here. Um, so help us to make the most of the time. We don't know how much time we have, but help us to honor the time you've given us and the breath and the days we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.